Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. My name is Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. I am blessed beyond all measure, reasonable and otherwise. Hope you recognize that you are as well. My DMs are always wide open to have that conversation if you want to talk about it a little bit further. So I talked about Joel Embiid a couple of days ago, and I want to talk about him again, and I want to compare him to another guy that I think is going to be playing a little bit longer in the NBA postseason as it appears like the Sixers might not. Also, a little bit later, looks like Dak Prescott is going to command a little bit more than $30 million per season from the Cowboys. And I don't know that he's worth it, but I know why he's probably going to get it. So we'll talk about that as well. Plus, we'll talk some Rockets-Warriors because that's the big event happening in sports tonight. And there was a great game seven last night in the NHL. Double overtime with the Stars and the Blues. And there was a Nashville tie-in, certainly, with Pat Maroon scoring the game winner. Ben Bishop, man, 52 saves. And he had 40 saves going into overtime. His team only had 17 shots. You want to talk about getting no support. And we know all about that, watching... Pecorine and the defense in front of him and the lack of offense on pretty all lines that we saw during that first round exit against Dallas. Ben Bishop did everything he possibly could and he's still going home. And that was almost sad. I saw a couple of hockey writers nationally tweeting out, can we just let Ben Bishop move on to the next round too? Because boy, oh boy, did he not get any support last night. St. Louis on their way to the Eastern Conference Finals. I'll talk a little bit about sort of the majesty of Game 7 as sort of something we all come together to watch a little bit later on in the program as well. But Monday I talked about Joel Embiid and how he's simultaneously, you know, scintillating and infuriating to watch because he has all this all-world talent. I talked about how he shoots around 48% from the field. He is an eight, uh, basically a 79.9% free throw shooter for his career. And at his size, that's outrageous. He shoots about 30% from three. He averages around 11 11 to 13 rebounds per season. He's got first ballot Hall of Fame stuff, but what does he have between his ears? And how much killer does he have in him? And so last night, in a game where he has to be the best player on the floor, or at least the best player on his team and needs to be that by a wide margin. He needs to just absolutely dominate. Well, he's got a respiratory infection, so he wasn't very good. And he was under the weather on Sunday, so he wasn't very good. And this is a story of Joel Embiid. 
And this is why I hated it when Mark Jackson said, if he doesn't go down as one of the great big men in the history of this game, that's a crime. No, it's a crime that we're just seeing such sporadic talent on a consistent basis from Joel Embiid because you don't know what you're going to get from him from night to night. And I'm saying that literally because there are reports that have been there all year that throughout the regular season, especially this year, but pretty much through his career, which he was drafted in 2014 and has not even played 160 pro games yet because of injuries and because they gave him just a 30-game sort of regimen one year. It's It's been kind of outrageous. But up to 20 to 30 minutes before tip, on a semi-regular basis, his teammates, the coaching staff, no one was for sure or confident that he was actually going to be able to play on any given night. I don't even know how you can handle something like that. Like, you want to be able to build around Joel Embiid, but how can you? I think there's going to come a time where the Sixers have to make a decision between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid on talent and what he's capable of doing, he's got a little bit of that unicorn tendency in him. But he's also got this thing where he's out of shape and he's overweight and his conditioning is a problem and he needs to take time off and he has a history of injuries and he can't play through illness at all. And so then you look at Ben Simmons and you say, well, Ben Simmons can't shoot. Maybe he can develop it. Kawhi Leonard couldn't shoot at all coming out of San Diego State. And early in his career at San Antonio, he was a liability offensively. Now he's one of the most efficient offensive players in the entire NBA. Last night he had an off game, but he was still over 20 points, and that stopped a five-game stretch where he had made 30 in all of those games. And Pascal Siakam picked everybody up last night, scored 25. Kyle Lowry had a nice night, and Kawhi played an efficient game. And still had a lot of rebounds. But the two games last night were total dogs for the NBA. Tonight is the marquee matchup, certainly. And we're probably going to see the last game Kyrie's ever going to play in a Boston uniform. And maybe I'll actually talk about Kyrie as well. Because the NBA is sort of on the pedestal right now in sports. But when you look at the difference between Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets. It's striking because I am so impressed with what the Nuggets have done after losing a four-overtime game on Friday night. They lose to Portland 140 to 137 in four overtimes. Nikola Jokic averaged between 30 and 31 minutes per game during the regular season, and of course you have more rest. He's averaging around 38 per game with less rest in the playoffs. And so I question whether or not he would just totally run out of gas because he doesn't look like he's in great condition, but he is a young guy and he hasn't had a history of injuries. And all he's done has been incredibly efficient, not to mention unselfish, but still getting his. He didn't have as great an offensive game last night, but he didn't need it. Everybody scored for them last night. And he still had a ridiculous amount of rebounds. He's averaging not just a double-double, a just supremely impressive Double-double. He's incredibly efficient on the floor as well. He was a plus 26 last night in the stat line. Had 25 points and 19 rebounds. 13 of them on the defensive end. Six assists because he likes to pass as well. He was 10 of 18 from the field. Jokic was as effective as Joel Embiid was ineffective. And these are two guys who are both still relatively young, but it seems like 
Embiid's body is way older. They were both drafted in 2014. Thing was, Embiid was picked number three as part of the process in Philadelphia. Jokic was picked in the second round with the 41st pick by the Denver Nuggets. He's averaging 20, 11, and 7. In, actually, he was only averaging around 26 game minutes this year. But he, I think he played maximum around 31. And he's playing somewhere between 37 and 38 a lot of this postseason. They've been able to cut his minutes just a bit because of being in control, especially last night. They were able to give him a little bit more of a rest. But when you're watching somebody like Jokic, he's a seven footer, 250 pounds, doesn't exactly look like a workout warrior. He's not in the gym all that much. But from a basketball condition standpoint, he's exactly what you want. And both him and Embiid, I mentioned them together because not only were they both picked in the same draft, they're also both kind of fun-loving guys. Like Joel Embiid and the whole Rihanna thing from years past and just when things are going right for him, nobody is a front-runner quite like the Philadelphia 76ers. They're cutting up in press conferences and Embiid is giving the wink and the gun to you know, reporters, and they're nudging each other, and Ben Simmons is laughing his rear end off, and then when they lose, they don't have a whole lot to say. And Ben Simmons is complaining about the crowd in Philadelphia booing them and saying, well, if you're going to be like that, just be on the other side. They don't handle adversity very well. And so they're down 3-2 to a Raptors team that's deeper than them and better than them because they seem to be tougher than them. Kawhi, tougher than them. Lowry, I mean, Lowry in the playoffs is, that's never generally very good. Siakam has been very good more often than not during this series. I don't, I know that Philadelphia has the talent to win the series. I don't think that they're going to be able to get this job done. Just like I don't think the Celtics are going to win tonight. I think that series is over. But I think that there is something really interesting to be said between Jokic and Embiid when it just comes to, it looks like Jokic is so much fun to be around and he makes everybody better. He's a great passer, but he can still score. He's a pretty good free throw shooter. He will muscle you up if if, if need be as well. He, I read a, an article about him yesterday where he likes candy, he likes horses, and he likes Game of Thrones which sounds kind of crazy, but he has like real life, just normal stuff. And it seems like everybody on his team just flourishes around his game. And the Nuggets, I joked last week and talked about how boring they were. I just need to apologize because they haven't been boring at all. That's been a really good series. It's gotten better as it's gone along. Last night was a dog game. Now Portland is up against it. They have to go to... Or they have to they get to go home and they have a chance to nod it up. Maybe they will. This series kind of deserves seven, it feels like. But the Nuggets are really good. Now I don't know how Jokic and the Nuggets match up with either Golden State or Houston, and we'll find out which one of those two teams is is actually going to be there. Tonight's game five is undoubtedly huge, and we'll go into it in a little while, or maybe in the final segment at least, and kind of preview that game because it is the marquee matchup that the NBA has to offer that's left. With all due respect, and I'm not disrespecting Giannis to say this, Giannis is, is outrageously great, and I know Charles Barkley has picked the Bucks now to win it all, and maybe they will, but the matchup people want to see is this James Harden, Chris Paul-led Rockets team against the Hampton Five lineup for the Golden State Warriors. 
But Embiid is so just, it's infuriating to watch him just no-show two games in a row. When this team is going to rise and fall based on what he does. Because he and Simmons are not good complementary players together. Simmons is better with him off the floor. Because Simmons can't get to the rim as easily when he's clogging up the painted area down low. And Embiid is just, Embiid's not aggressive. He's not looking for his shot very much. Simmons is certainly not looking for his shot either. I think he had seven points last night. These two games were brutal. 125-89, Toronto over Philadelphia. This thing was never in doubt. And the Nuggets just boat raced Portland last night at home, 124-98. to And it seemed like Portland was tired. And this could have been an altitude thing. It always is. When, I mean, Denver is 34-7 and at home. Altitude is really interesting. I was on Fox Sports Radio this morning with Jeff Schwartz. This was interesting. He was talking about his days in the NFL when he had to play in Denver. The way to play in altitude and play in Denver in particular is that you would almost have to tire yourself out during pregame workouts to catch the second wind before the game even started. He would say, you know, you would just work out super hard in the hours leading up to the game and you would be exhausted, but then you would catch the second win, and the second win would be better than just trying to be fresh when the game started. That's fascinating. But I've always said that playing in the Pepsi Center in particular because of the speed of the game of basketball and just how it's relentless in its pacing, that playing against the Nuggets when they're good at home is a Herculean task. And that's what we're seeing. 34-7 and at home with that lineup with Jokic and with Murray playing the way Murray is playing, Mike Malone doesn't get anywhere near enough credit for how good a coach he is. And lest we forget, yesterday was a tough day in Denver with the Colorado school shooting. Mike Malone kind of talking about that as well. I mean, that's... I don't know what to say. There's nothing that you can say other than we're praying for those families. And this stuff has to stop somehow, and I don't know what the answer is. I saw Jason Romano, who I've had on this show, Sports Spectrum, say yesterday he was angry about it, that it happened across the street, the schools across the street from the Sports Spectrum headquarters. I may have Jason on, actually, because he was flying out there yesterday, and maybe he'll have some insight on this. I don't know the answer either, but I can understand the anger, and I can understand the vitriol, and I can understand that it feels like there needs to be some pathway to get past this. And it's hard to segue from basketball into that. So we're going to go ahead and go to the commercial here and go to the break. But the Nuggets, with all of that behind them, just showed up last night in Denver on a night that that community had really seen another difficult day. And this isn't the first day that guns in the state of Colorado have been linked. It's also not the second day, unfortunately. But they showed up and they won 124-98. And they did it in a very classy way. And... Jokic is an athlete that is pretty easy to root for. And that team kind of seems to be a team that's very easy to root for. I talked about positivity yesterday. Both these two teams in particular, they're fun to watch because it seems like they actually have fun playing together. When we come back on the other side, Dak Prescott, the money that he wants, is he worth it? I'll tell you my thoughts. This is the Big Six on 104.5. Welcome back into the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to helping homeowners become rent estate investors by renting their homes instead of selling. 
Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. Fort Worth Star Telegram and other Cowboys sources talking about Dak Prescott and how contract negotiations, the expectation and what the Cowboys organization feels like they're going to be paying Dak Prescott is somewhere north of $30 million, but in the $30 million a year range. And I've kind of made no bones about this in whatever time I've been on the radio, whether it's here or for Fox or, or anywhere else. I think Dak Prescott is a winner. I think he has a winning attitude. I think he has a positive attitude. I think he's a really good young man. I like everything about him, except for the fact that I don't think you win a Super Bowl with him as the centerpiece of your football team because I don't trust him as a passer enough. And so when you look at Dak Prescott just last year, 22 touchdowns to eight interceptions, that's really not bad. That's better than I thought, honestly. He averaged 243 passing yards per game. But usually he's a little, I mean, he's somewhere in like the 206 to 250 range. And then he'll run the ball and he can score you some touchdowns uh, from that way as well, or he can at least keep the chains moving. But I saw for too many times last year where he overthrew speedy guys like Gallup or he threw the wrong shoulder of Amari Cooper after they acquired Amari from the Raiders. It's the inconsistent accuracy of Dak Prescott that makes me think you don't win a Super Bowl with the football in his hands. He's going to throw a couple per game that if the other team is able to make a jump on those balls, they're going to be in the vicinity of the defense to where those could go the other way. And that's how the Cowboys get beat. He was 13-3 and three in 2016, but that offense flowed through Ezekiel Elliott, not through Dak Prescott. And when it flowed through Zeke, they were in a much better position to win games. When it was on Dak, wasn't as good the last two years. They made the playoffs this year and they beat Seattle, and that's mainly because Seattle's game plan was not very good. They ran the ball on first and second down. And then they said, Russell Wilson, it's third down and 13. Go throw us a, or go do something to get us a first down and keep the chains moving. It wasn't efficient. It didn't make sense. And Russell Wilson still almost managed to get that job done. But when you look at Dak Prescott and you think about this contract and what he's commanding, when you look at the market, what guys this puts him in a class of, though, it's an elite class of quarterbacks. It's Roethlisberger, it's Matt Ryan, it is Russell Wilson. It's Aaron Rodgers. I think that's the entire list. Do you think Dak Prescott's in that list? And that's the problem because as the quarterback market continues to go, you're having to pay dudes like Derek Carr more money than they're worth. And so Dak Prescott last year was 15th in yards at 38.85. I mentioned 22 touchdowns to eight interceptions. He didn't throw as many picks as I thought, but he certainly had his share of incompletions. But his percentages, and I look at all this across the board, he was, you know, 67% completion. And he, I mean, he actually had a half-decent season last year. But I'm thinking about you're paying him money, and you really don't want him to throw the football all that much if you're Dallas. It's real interesting because Russell Wilson, and I heard Mina Kimes and various other NFL people talking about this in the wake of paying Russell Wilson. They paid a guy that they don't really want to throw the ball all that much. And then they drafted DK Metcalf. And all of the talk amongst 
people after the draft was the reason they drafted DK Metcalf may have been so that you don't play so you don't play one safety against him and it allows you to run the ball more. Again, they drafted a wide receiver that's going to allow them to run the ball because that's generally what they want to do in Seattle. So they paid Russell Wilson the most money a quarterback's ever gotten, and he's worth every penny of it, but they're not even going to ask him to do what most quarterbacks are asked to do. And so Dak Prescott, you're going to have to pay this money, and he's probably not going to take a discount because no one does unless they're Tom Brady. And you know, you've brought in Randall Cobb, and you've done some other things but I don't know if you should pay Dak this fast. And the reason I'm thinking about this Dak Prescott thing today is because quarterback decisions are everything in the NFL. How much money you have on a hard salary cap, how much you're going to offer to that position in particular, and how much you demand or expect from that position. You should. It's a quarterback's league. It's a passing league. But again, when that offense goes through 21, they do a lot better than when it's running through four. That sounds an awful lot like what we have seen for the Tennessee Titans for the last handful of years, and certainly last year. When it started to run through Derrick Henry, the Titans were in a much better position than when it was running through the quarterback spot because of accuracy issues as well in short to intermediate routes from Marcus Mariota, him not being able to stay on the field because of just various things that went wrong body-wise and injuries that just sidelined him. But when they were able to run the ball, they were able to succeed. And that's what happened in the back half of the season when Derrick Henry woke up. And when you talk about Dak Prescott and the money that he is going to be commanding potentially in the open market or commanding for the Dallas Cowboys to keep him, which I think they're going to, and I can understand why they feel like they have to, even though, again, do you think that Tony Romo wouldn't have gone 13-3 and the way Dak did when you look at what Zeke Elliott brought to them and the offensive line that they had that year and the defense that they had that year, they were loaded. Tony Romo could have done exactly the same thing. He's a better quarterback than Dak Prescott. I don't think I'm stepping out on any limb at all to say that. But the Titans also have a situation where they have to make a decision as to whether they're going to commit to Marcus Mariota long-term. And they're going to wait this year, and they're going to see what he does, and then they're going to make the determination. The question is, with the market being where it is for quarterbacks, how do you feel if you're a team that is paying sort of an average guy, maybe a guy that has a winning mentality but also has definite flaws in his game where you're like, I don't know if that guy's a Super Bowl winning quarterback if the ball is in his hands too often. Dak, not really an injury risk. Marcus seems to be an injury risk. If he can get through a full season this year, and he plays well, maybe that's different. But you talk about the stats. Dak Prescott at 15 in yards. Marcus Mariota was 26th. Of course, just 11 touchdowns and 8 interceptions this year. He was sacked 42 times. Dak was sacked 56 times this year. Marcus only averaged 181 yards per game to Dak's 243. And I'm telling you, I think Dak is a guy that if I could find a way not to pay him, I would probably try not to pay him if I thought that I needed that to win the Super Bowl because he strikes me as a guy that needs everything to be perfect around him to win at that level. And that's, I think the same thing is true for Marcus Mariota. And how do we know that? Because everything has never been perfect around him on his offense or certainly on the team as a whole. And he's had all the turnover with coordinators and he's dealt with multiple head coaches. 
there have been some things that have not been perfect around him, and he hasn't been able to succeed. Dak needs ideal circumstances to win games when they matter most in the NFL on a consistent basis. And so I'm watching the contract negotiations between the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. And I think Dak has proven more than Marcus Mariota has, but I don't think either one of them is an elite quarterback. And I don't think either one of them will ever be an elite quarterback. Would love to see both of them prove me wrong. They're both, again, super easy to root for on virtually every level. And Dak, of course, was bought at a discount because you got him late and lucked into the fact that he turned out to be pretty good. And he did have Zeke Elliott around him and he did have a lot of things to help him him succeed early on in that Cowboys uniform in that Cowboys offense for Jason Garrett and now he's got Jason Witten coming back I don't know what that's going to be but it's another leader if nothing else and it's still a guy that can probably go down the field and get you five to seven yards a great possession tight end and then Randall Cobb's just another guy I don't know how much he's got left in the tank but he's just added to the fire and Amari Cooper is going through his own contract negotiations seems like they're making some inroads there, but they're going to have to pay him a lot. We know they're going to have to pay Dak a lot. So what's going to be left over for them long-term? How long is their window? How big is their window? And so I think if you want to watch something that might have relevance to Nashville, pay attention to how the Cowboys handled this situation with Dak Prescott and then watch Marcus Mariota this year, and, and maybe you can actually read the tea leaves from afar and watch one example and apply it to another example. I'm not saying that what happens with Dak is what's going to happen to Marcus, but look at the money that Dak gets. And then you have to wonder what exactly is it going to take if you do want to line Marcus up long-term. I am on record. I don't think he's the guy, and I would not pay him. But if he comes out and he's a total stud this year and he wins a ton of football games and he stays healthy and he finally lives up to the promise that I think many Titans fans still hold out hope that he can... I'll be fine to change my tune. But just like James Harden, I'm going to have to see James Harden win a championship before I predict he can win one. I know he can win one, but I'm not going to predict he will until I actually see him do it because I've seen him fail too many times. I've seen it go the wrong way too many times. Marcus has to prove me wrong right now. Not that that's his goal, but he's having to prove a lot of people wrong right now. And I'm rooting for him to do so. I just feel like we would know right now if he was the guy. But Dak Prescott getting 30 mil a season. How does that make you feel as a Titans fan as it relates to Marcus Mariota? Another guy that I think is in that same class, but not quite to the level of Dak Prescott, who I just told you I don't think you can win a Super Bowl with that guy as the centerpiece of your offense. Zeke Elliott being there, Amari Cooper and having some other things there probably will help you. Getting rid of Jason Garrett might help you as well. We'll be right back. Big Six, 104. Classic. Glad to have you with us here on a Wednesday. We're now past the midpoint of the week. This is the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. Here's something we'll be telling you more and more about. 104.5 The Zone's 2019 Golf Classic. It's nearing a little over a month away. Monday, June 17th. It'll be a Champions Run golf course in Rockville. 
spend the day away from the office. You get to tee off on one of the most beautiful courses in the Middle Tennessee area. You can pick a morning or an afternoon flight. Spots are limited. To get more info or purchase your foursome today, visit our website, 1045thezone.com. I want to talk about Kyrie Irving. Boston and Milwaukee tonight. In Milwaukee, Bucks up 3-1. Giannis playing out of his mind. Barkley's picked the Bucks to win it all. They look great. Boston looks fractured. And Kyrie Irving is being Kyrie Irving. And I, I don't know whether or not it's fun to be around him, but it does not seem like it's fun to be him. And I'm not going to say, when you make millions of dollars, you should be happy. Because money doesn't buy happiness. We know this. But Kyrie Irving comes across as somebody that's miserable to live in his own body like he walks around with a mirror and he's looking at himself and his face always has tears that he's having to wipe away like he's just this close from like self-destruction I don't know what it is but that guy can't be your leader if you want to win an NBA championship that seems pretty much the case before LeBron got to Cleveland they won like 20 games with him Boston last year should have made the NBA Finals. They were on the cusp of making the NBA Finals, made it to a Game 7, and then could not make a three-point basket. Kyrie comes back this year when he's on the floor. Jason Tatum now looks like a guy that you don't want on your basketball team. Jalen Brown's not the same player. There was a blue-collar mentality that surrounded the Celtics last year. where they And it started with Brad Stevens. Then you had like Terry Rozier coming out of nowhere and playing great in the playoffs. Morris is playing great in the playoffs. Jalen Brown's really starting to emerge. Tatum looks like a young superstar. Everything that you wanted, you saw from that Celtics team last year. This year, it's Kyrie. And Kyrie, after another bad shooting performance in the postgame, when he was asked about it, said he didn't care. It doesn't matter what this reporter said. He gets real belligerent with the media anytime things are not going really well for him. And then he said, I should have taken 30 shots instead of the 22 that he only made seven of because, quote, I'm that great a shooter, unquote. Maybe so, but he was off. And he was talking about how he was trying to do it all, trying to get it to his teammates, but he was also trying to be aggressive. He's a guy that's very fond of himself. Or that's what he wants people to believe. There's got to be some level of insecurity behind this because he consistently wants to tell you how great he is, especially after losses. He's not somebody that puts the blame on himself other than, oh, I should have shot even more even though I couldn't make anything. The Bucks are a great defensive team and the ball stops when it's in Kyrie Irving's hands. He called himself a basketball genius four days ago as well and as a ball handler, he absolutely is. Just tremendous. His crossover and everything he can do with the basketball, he's a wizard. But right now, the New York Knicks are listed as the fourth best chances to win the East next year, seventh best chances to win the NBA championship. And what that hinges upon is Vegas's belief that Kevin Durant's going to be a Nick, and I think that Kyrie Irving is going to be a Nick. And maybe that Zion Williamson is actually going to go number one, and he will go to the Knicks. And we know he'll go number one, but he'll go to the Knicks. I don't know whether or not they'll win the lottery or not. The way the NBA sets it up, who knows? And if they do win it, I'm sure there will be some people that claim rigged. Because that's just the way it goes. If I was the NBA, I would consider it, quite frankly. I know you can't do that. I'm just kind of joking there. But if you could get him to New York, that's where you want Zion Williamson. If you can make New York relevant again, that would be huge for the NBA. But I started thinking about chemistry and just 
who you want to play with, who you don't want to play with. And I've had this argument, and I asked you about this same thing as it regarded to would you want to be a secondary player to LeBron James for the Lakers, where you're going to take a lot of the blame and where you're never going to get any credit when you do something right because he soaks up all the oxygen. Kyrie Irving has taken whatever chemistry and camaraderie and blue-collar mentality that that Celtics team had, and it's just about him, and he is not a number one player. He's a number two guy, just like he was in Cleveland. And you saw all you needed to know when Kyrie apologized to LeBron and said, you know, I didn't even know how to be a leader. I've started to figure out what it's like to be a leader. You actually haven't. He hasn't figured it out yet. And he's still so caught up in himself that it's infectious in exactly the wrong way. As I talked about, people flourish around Jokic. Embiid, when he's on, same thing can be true. Problem is the inconsistency there. And certainly we're seeing what happens when Giannis is really on fire. That team really thrives around him. Who really thrives around Kyrie Irving? This Celtics team is a shell of what it was a year ago. Jason Tatum looked like a guy that was going to be one of the top 15, 20 players in the league, and now he's not getting the ball the way that he used to. And he's sort of a nice, well-mannered kid who's still very young, who idolized Kobe Bryant. But guess what? So did Kyrie Irving. But there's only one Kobe Bryant, and both of those guys on the same team, it's just not working. But Kyrie's not getting the ball to Tatum where he needs it. Tatum's not being aggressive enough when he does get it. There's just a, there is a mismatch here. And so the question is, is tonight going to be the last game Kyrie Irving plays in a Celtics uniform? I would say if they lose, Boston should be just fine letting Kyrie go. And I know that's crazy because of how good he is in terms of his talent. I'm not going to call him a cancer because I think that's too harsh. But he does not seem like he's the kind of guy that is going to encourage the rest of his team to play at their highest level. Because I just don't sense that whatever it was that meshed together for the Celtics last year works the same way. And that if Rozier and those guys were still out there without Kyrie Irving, that this would probably be a more competitive and certainly a harder-fought series than it has been. The third quarter in particular for Boston has been disastrous in this series. It's like they just kind of... I mean, they had the lead at the half against the Bucks, And then they just got boat-raced in that second half, and that third quarter wasn't even close. And that's just what we're seeing here. This is a team that doesn't seem like it wants to fight. Like it is perfectly fine to just go ahead and get this thing over with. And I talked about how the Lakers stopped wanting to fight late in the season. And that LeBron was eventually going to shut it down and needed to because this thing just... It wasn't going to happen. That's the same thing we're seeing here. Remember the fight that you saw from the Clippers in the first round and Doc Rivers and the way he coached them up and just the way Lou Williams was playing and Montrez Harrell was, was playing off the bench for the Clippers against the Warriors and just how much they wanted it coming back from 31 down to beat the Warriors. And it was so impressive to watch that. And just watching the Nuggets again, they lost in four overtimes on Friday and just they come back and win two in a row, a tight one and then a total just beat down last night at home over Portland. So impressive. The Celtics are the exact opposite. And I think that it starts, it doesn't start with Brad Stevens. Nothing's changed about whether or not he can coach or not. I don't think it starts with the Rosiers and those guys of the world. I think it starts with Kyrie Irving. If he wants to be 
if he wants to say that he's become a leader or if he wants to talk about what a great player he is all the time and what a genius he is, if he's a basketball genius, then he needs to figure out that he seems to be the problem from a chemistry standpoint. Again, calling him poison or calling him a cancer is it may be a leap too far. But I will say this. He is not a guy I think I would want to play with right now in the NBA. I don't think I'm wrong, and I think that that list is going to get longer. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the offseason if he does go with Durant, because I don't know how that mix will work either. Kyrie's got a little bit of Russell Westbrook in him. That didn't necessarily work out too well in Oklahoma City when it came to just guys getting along at that level as stars. We'll finish up the program next. This is a big six on 104.5. Hey, welcome back. Final segment of the program tonight on a Wednesday. Big six here on 104.5. The Zone. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate. Renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. My name is Jason Martin. Blessed to have you as part of my audience, just blessed in life in general for so many, many reasons. Follow me on Twitter again at jmartzone if you'd like. Tonight is Warriors-Rockets Game 5 in Golden State. And the Warriors finally look like they might have a chance to get beat. I'm still going to pick them to win the series. I think they'll win tonight. I just... Again, I told you I can't buy into James Harden until I see him do it, but I also said last night that his chicken wing push-off needs to be in the Hall of Fame all by itself, and I don't even begrudge him for it anymore. They're not going to call it, and he is at some point, like that's just part of his game. It's part of his routine, and so it's just something that you're going to watch, and it's a beautiful thing to watch, no question about that. It's amazing that he gets away with it. But Game 5 tonight after this series is still on serve, Steph started to come around a little bit in the second half last week or last game a couple days ago. Klay Thompson still just looks like a man without a country out there. And I think this is the point. Kevin Durant's the best player on the team, but when the offense is running through KD and not running through Steph, there is a flow problem for the Golden State Warriors. When it's running through Steph, the passing is more crisp. Guys are more involved. When Kevin Durant has the basketball and he is the one that is commanding the attention, a lot of Warriors just standing around watching KD operate. I've told you before that he has the most unblockable shot in the game because of his wingspan. No one can rise up to stop his jumper. It's like the Kareem Skyhook, but with a higher efficiency rating just because his shot is one that actually has a better form to it. Now, Kareem's the only guy that's ever been able to do what he did. If a big guy could ever develop that move, it would be unstoppable. But no one's ever been able to do it, and it doesn't seem like many people have even attempted it. But Steph is the engine that really makes that team go. And when he is off and when he's not right, that team doesn't look the same. But Klay Thompson in particular is, what, one of six from distance in game four? He's just been bad. And it's not like he's all of a sudden lost the ability to play basketball. I just don't think he knows where he fits on this team anymore, which makes me wonder what's going to happen in free agency. He said he'd like to be a warrior for life. And maybe he will. I think that Kevin Durant leaving, which is still likely to happen, is probably the best thing that could happen to Clay Thompson when it just comes to him finding his fit again. 
when it was the Splash Brothers and it was Draymond and it was Andre Iguodala and there was no Kevin Durant because he was still in Oklahoma City, Klay Thompson was more consistently featured in the offense. Now Klay Thompson is the guy standing around watching Kevin Durant take a lot of the shots. Klay just doesn't have as many opportunities. There's no rhythm to his game. And what the Rockets have done is they have taken Clint Capella out of the lineup except when, like, Kavon Looney is in there, and sometimes early in these games, and they've gone small, and they put P.J. Tucker at the five, and P.J. Tucker is a dog. He's out there rebounding like crazy, especially on the offensive end. Golden State, I think, went the first 18 minutes without an offensive rebound in game four. They just, it's not, I'm not going to use that stupid cliche that they want it more, meaning the Rockets. They don't. There is a switch-flipping prophecy where sometimes it's hard to flip that switch after you couldn't do it in the regular season. Now the Warriors are trying to do it against a team that matches up pretty well against them. Jeff Bizdelic, who came back to be the defensive coordinator, basically, for the Rockets, that's what he was last year, and he had left at the beginning of this season for personal issues, came back after Thanksgiving, and now this team is playing ridiculous defense and the Warriors are not. But P.J. Tucker has kind of been the unsung hero here just in terms of how he is going after the basketball. But these guys are bullying the Warriors. They are physical against the Warriors. I have a friend that works for Fox that was tweeting during Game 4. He said, have you ever seen an all-time great, like first ballot Hall of Fame player like Steph Curry just bodied up and bullied and challenged to play defense more than Steph Curry has been? Like, he's picked on. He always has been, but he's being picked on more and more. And it does seem to be affecting him. They're taking him out of his rhythm. But I think that the Durant thing is the thing to keep in mind here. I also think the Warriors are going to win tonight. I don't know that this thing is going to go seven. Maybe it will. I don't know it's been great basketball, but it's at least been dramatic to watch. All these games have been close. Warriors didn't play particularly well in game three or game four. It took overtime to beat them in game three, and they barely lost game four. Durant had a wide open three at the top of the key and somehow missed it. And then Curry missed one from the left corner. So there are reasons for, I guess, feeling better about yourself if you're the Golden State Warriors going into this. I don't think there are any reasons to feel good if you're a Celtic right now, down 3-1 against Giannis. That seems like time to call this season off, and we'll see if Kyrie's going to New York or if he's going to go reunite with LeBron James in Los Angeles for the Lakers next year. But the NBA definitely has the headlines. NHL last night, a double overtime game that was fascinating and really, really intense and great to watch between the Stars and the St. Louis Blues. And then tonight, the Sharks and the Avs are going to play in another Game 7. There's nothing quite like a Game 7 in sports. There's nothing quite like a Game 7 in hockey that goes to overtime in particular because of the frantic nature and the intensity and what you're seeing on the ice. Also, hockey is interesting in that you can sit there and you can get kind of invested in that game last night, even if you haven't watched the rest of the series. And I've watched some of this series. I've watched some of all of these series. I enjoy hockey, especially in the postseason. It's not something you talk about on radio very much because, let me just go ahead and whisper this, and it's not necessarily true about your local hockey team, but hockey is death on the radio. Unless you're in a major national market. If the Predators are playing right now, we would be talking about the Predators. But there's only so much you can say about the offseason and bad deals that somehow the team has to get out from underneath. But when you talk about the Game 7s in the NHL, you can get invested in a Game 7 without a dog in the fight. And I saw media people tweeting this last night. 
But after it's over, when it comes to hockey, it's not like you're all of a sudden now a Blues fan or you're invested in the Blues and you're going to follow them through the Western Conference Finals and the Stanley Cup. A Game 7 in the NHL, if it's not a team that you care anything about generally because hockey is such a kind of a niche sport and different in the way that it's applied in the sports landscape, it's like you watched it, but you're not really going to talk about it. You might talk about it the next day, but then you're going to forget about it and go on with the rest of your life. And then somebody's going to tell you in a couple of weeks, hey, there's going to be a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals. And then you're going to tune into that game, and the same thing's going to happen. It's not like other sports where some of this stuff actually does kind of carry over and you get sucked into it. There is something that is a little distancing about the game of hockey, I would say. But that was a tremendous sporting event last night, and I love Stanley Cup overtime playoff hockey. It's very tough to get better than that. And putting it in a Game 7 and going to double OT... That was tremendous stuff. I hope we get another one of those tonight. I know what you'll get tomorrow. Another episode of The Big Six. We'll see you then. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. God bless and good night.